Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Jimmy, we're going to do just that today. We're going to talk with Ken Timmerman. We're going to get an update on Vladimir Putin and his trip to the Middle East. We're also going to talk to Dave Dolan and get an update on the situation in Israel with the war between Hamas and Israel. Today begins Hanukkah. We talked about it last week, but today we talk with Paul Sharp because that event took place during the 400 silent years of the Bible, the space between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're going to focus on that. And did you know that there are thousands of organizations inside the church and outside of the church that serve the body of Christ? The backbone of America, really serves the body of Christ, but we are being labeled as terrorists like Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. Can you imagine that? Dr. Richmond comes today to give us information pertaining to a conversation and the world is coming after us. I'm also going to be talking to a good friend of mine who is a first responder. In fact, he's the fire chief in Dallas, Texas, and he's going to talk to us about what it means for the world to come after us. Rick, let's get started with our first interview, Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. Ken Timmerman joins us. He is our expert on geopolitical affairs. He's an author and analyst with all kinds of experience. It's something that you could look into by going to his website, kentimmerman.com. You could see the books that he's written, read his blog, sign up for his newsletter. Ken, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Thanks for having me on. Rick, it's always a pleasure. Well, Ken, as always, there's no shortage of things for us to talk about. So we're going to go around the world just a little bit, but we'll start with uh, Vladimir Putin from Russia. He is visiting the Middle East this week. He's working the Middle East, trying to gain more influence there and see Seemingly being successful. Can you tell us about that a little bit? Well, Putin uh, on Wednesday was visiting in the United Arab Emirates, also in Saudi Arabia, meeting with the leaders there, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed in the UAE and Mohammed bin Salman in the Saudi Arabia. And uh, really, I see this as kind of thumbing his nose at John Kerry and at Joe Biden, because these are our haunts. The, these are this is our turf in the Middle East. Uh, so Putin has shown that, number one, he is not isolated. He can travel around the world, even though there is a, a international arrest warrant against him. Neither the UAE nor Saudi Arabia had signed the International Criminal Court Treaty, so he did not risk it in those countries. But he shows that he is not isolated. He can travel as he wish. Number two, he still has friends and allies. The UAE and Saudi Arabia are ostensibly American allies. We have an air base in the UAE, but still... Putin can go and talk with those leaders. He is well received by them. He has an arms deal ongoing with Saudi Arabia. So he's playing on traditional U.S. turf. And to me, Ricky, this really shows the dangers of the empty bluster from our president of the United States. Don't make threats such as you're going to overthrow Vladimir Putin or you're going to drive Russia out of Ukraine or you want to see a new government in Russia. Don't make threats if you can't carry them out. This is something that Trump showed us uh, often. Teddy Roosevelt obviously was famous for saying this, uh, speak softly, but carry a big stick. Joe Biden shows us that he, he screams out with the headlines, but he carries a limp shillelagh. 
Well, Ken, as we continue to look at Putin's visit to the Middle East, and we'll talk about him going to Iran. And of course, on this program, Prophecy Today, we look at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. And you've mentioned it, we've mentioned it, Ezekiel 38, and the ties between that area of Russia and Iran. And these are the nations that are going to be involved in this in the future. But he is currently developing a very strong relationship with Iran, isn't he? Well, they have signed a military treaty. They did this last year, uh, a military and strategic agreement, uh, not only uh, covering oil and gas cooperation, but military cooperation. So Thursday, after he was in the UAE and Saudi Arabia on Wednesday, on Thursday, he goes back to Moscow, where he greets uh, President Raisi of the Islamic State of Iran, the Iranian regime president. And of course, they are talking about the Israel-Hamas war. Putin has apparently ditched his previous close relationship with Bibi Netanyahu for the Iranians. He has condemned Israel at the United Nations. He's condemned them wherever he travels. He has uh, was certainly trying to drive a wedge between Israel and the United Arab Emirates when he was in uh, Abu Dhabi on Wednesday. And on Thursday, he was uh, openly coordinating with uh, Raisi on the next steps to take to force Israel into some kind of binding ceasefire agreement. Now, our listeners understand, and and as I reported last week, and as I saw in Israel the week before that, uh, the Israelis are not about to accept any kind of ceasefire before they have absolutely decimated Hamas. They cannot live next to an entity that is able to wage war against them, that is able to cross the frontiers, sneak across and murder Israelis. They simply have no more tolerance for that. October 7th put the end to that. But Putin is looking for ways to shackle the Israelis. Now, one additional wrinkle here, Rick, is there's a report that the uh, from the Wall Street Journal that the Wagner Group, this is the paramilitary group that Putin has used to kind of staff fill shortfalls in the Russian army, whether it's in Ukraine or in Syria or in Africa. The report that the Wagner Group is preparing to transfer to Hezbollah in Lebanon a sophisticated air defense system. Why? To protect them against the Israeli Air Force launching strikes against them after they have launched missiles into Israel. So a lot of things going on here, uh, very dangerous uh, and unsettling to see Putin shift away from Israel towards uh, Iran, towards uh, Hezbollah, towards Hamas, uh, something that I think would not have happened had Donald Trump still been in the White House. Certainly concerning, and we'll keep an eye on that. Before we move on from Russia and Vladimir Putin, let's talk about the Russia-Ukraine crisis. The events of October 7th and what have followed have really dominated our attention, but there is still a war being fought there. What's the status of the war between Russia and Ukraine? Well, what's happened, Rick, is that over the past, I'd say, six to eight weeks, the realization has dawned on Western capitals that this uh, much touted counteroffensive that the Ukrainians uh, were going to launch in May, June and over the summer has failed. It has completely failed. They launched uh, three major axes uh, where they're trying to penetrate the Russian lines. They only succeeded in one area and just a tiny bit. They have not really been able to do more than secure a bridgehead across a river. They would like to cut off Russia's access to Crimea. They have not succeeded in doing that. They have not succeeded despite tremendous losses in men and equipment in really accomplishing much. And the Russians have shown, as they have shown in wars uh, many times in the past, 
that they can absorb enormous, enormous human casualties. They simply don't care. They empty their prisons and put those people on the front lines as cannon fodder. They don't care how many men they lose, but they can absorb enormous losses and slog through. And they are in there for a long slog. And I think they're going to wait the Ukrainians out. Look, in my view, and I think recent events have shown this, the United States has two choices here. Either we arm Ukraine very fast and to the full, everything that they want. And the Ukrainians' chief of staff recently told Lloyd Austin, our secretary of defense, they need 17 million rounds of ammunition, of, of, of 155 millimeter ammunition. We don't, we can't, we don't produce that much. And we can't produce that much, I think, in something like five years. So they have enormous needs. So either we arm them to the full or we try to find a path towards negotiation. I think this war is, I won't say it's winding down, but I think it is winding slowly towards negotiation. Well, Ken, for my last subject that I'd like to talk to you about today, you wrote a book called The Preachers of Hate, Islam and the War on America, in which you talk about anti-Semitism. Now, this is not a new book, but it's something that is current for today and is relevant for us today. And I always wanted to ask you about it. We're going to have Dave Dolan on in our Middle East News Update and talk about the war in Gaza and what is taking place there with Israel. But Ken, I have been seeing so much anti-Semitism, anti-Jewishness. And one of the things that has really concerned me, and we've seen it in our higher levels of education here in the United States, is these denials of what took place on October 7th. Now, I've heard of denials of the Holocaust, but October 7th, with documentation, more documentation than you could imagine, but people are downplaying it and uh, calling for a ceasefire, which, as you mentioned earlier, is something that the nation of Israel cannot accept. If you could, Ken, could you talk just a little bit about anti-Semitism and how it is rearing its ugly head since October 7th? It's pretty disgraceful to watch it, especially on college campuses and especially to see those college presidents uh, in Congress essentially try to forge this phony equivalence between anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, uh, two completely different things. As as uh, uh, Elise Stefanik, the representative from New York, Republican, uh, said in one of her questions, she said, have you seen anywhere crowds of 200, 300 Jews or others threatening Muslims on college campuses? Not at all. Muslim students do not live in fear. Look, this book that I wrote, Preachers of Hate, was the first book after 9-11 to really examine the nexus between anti-Semitism and the attacks on America. And I, I felt it was vitally important that Americans understand that much of today's anti-Semitism, while aimed at Jews, stems from a belief system, Rick, that equally rejects America and indeed Western civilization as a whole. Just as Jews throughout history, Americans see themselves as special or chosen people with a mission for the world. Just as Jews, American believes it embodies eternal values of absolute good that we seek to spread to others. So when Jews see themselves as the chosen people, Americans see ourselves as a chosen nation. That's why we talk about American exceptionalism. If you hate Jews, you must also hate America. That's why I think you've seen this nexus between the left, the hard left, and that's the anti-Semitic left that is rearing its ugly head in America, and the left-wing anti-American movement in general, the people who hate America. Remember when Obama was blasting his, his Republican rivals uh, for talking about American exceptionalism. And he said, well, I believe in exceptionalism. I believe in Belgian exceptionalism. I believe in Greek exceptionalism. In other words, Obama did not believe in America. That's what he was talking about. So I think, and I argue in this book, 
that hating Jews is really very similar in the mindset today to hating America. You hate the whole notion of a God-centered universe. Well, if you're interested in that book or any of the books that Ken has written, you can go to his website, KenTimmerman.com. There you'll find a tab that says books. You can see all the books that he's written. Ken, thank you so much for coming on, informing our listeners today, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much for having me, Rick. God bless. we got to take a break, and when we come back, David Dolan and our Middle East News Update, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Indonesia's government is giving Jesus a new non-Arabic name in 2024. Todd Nettleton with the Voice of the Martyrs USA says some Christian leaders worry about outreach to Muslims. Others fear Indonesia could go the way of Malaysia, another Muslim-majority nation. Only the Lord knows what tomorrow holds. Pray this change will create opportunities to share the gospel. And in Vietnam, Christian leaders are often limited to preaching the Bible to fellow Christians. But this year, Franklin Graham was allowed to preach at an open-air rally in Vietnam. Over 42,000 people attended, and Pastor Luke, a Vietnamese pastor with A3, translated for Franklin Graham, communicating the gospel to many non-believers in his own country. More than 4,500 people began relationships with Christ, and Pastor Luke says 92% of these new believers are plugged into a local church. What's more, there are plans for another event in 2024. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries, I'm Ruth Kramer. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. This is the portion of our program that we call our Middle East News Update. We look at news coming out of the Middle East in general, but Israel in particular, especially since October 7th. We've certainly been focused on the crisis in Gaza and the war between Israel and Hamas. Joining us this week, as he does every week to keep us updated, is author and journalist Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us. A blessing to be with you, Rick. Well, David, you've kept us updated on what is taking place in Israel. What happened this week, and what is the latest going on right now? Well, Rick, uh, the fighting has been the most intense of the war this week in the Gaza Strip. We've lost, as of Friday evening, the Army said 22 soldiers since the renewed fighting began after Hamas pulled out of the ceasefire, essentially. That makes 93 since the actual fighting began in October and uh, 418, Rick, since October 7th, most of those having been killed uh, the day of the mass slaughter. We had one of the war cabinet ministers, Gabi Eisenkot's son, killed in the fighting in Gaza. He was near a shaft of a tunnel that they'd uncovered in Gaza City, 
and a terrorist uh, popped up and shot him dead. His uh, funeral yesterday, uh, which was the first full day of Hanukkah, Rick, was extremely emotional. The prime minister, the uh, all the, the top cabinet members were there. Uh, the eulogies from his father were very, very moving. Uh, the, his uh, family, his parents were from Morocco, so they're Sephardic Jews, well-known in the country, well-loved uh, in the country. It was very, very moving and televised. So what is uh, normally the first day of a joyous festival was another day of funerals and, and weeping uh, and for the other families of the uh, seven that were killed on Thursday, the highest one-day uh, death toll. Uh, the IDF says over uh, 4,000, maybe over 5,000 even uh, Hamas members have been killed since uh, the war began. They have around 30,000 fighters altogether, Rick, so that still leaves a lot left, but uh, they're making that a goal. And uh, two soldiers, I, I should mention, were severely injured. It was reported Friday evening while they were in a mission to save some of the hostages. So some of the hostages had been found and they were sent in to rescue them. And, and sadly, uh, they did kill the terrorists holding them and they know them to be members of the invaders that came in October 7th, but uh, two of the soldiers were severely wounded there. And then we had more rocket attacks upon the Tel Aviv area on Friday, Rick. It was so intense that people said it was raining shrapnel and there's pictures of of shrapnel all over the Tel Aviv area. Um, and of course, that's partly from the Iron Dome that strikes these incoming rockets and shrapnel from that falls. But of course, the blown up rocket itself has a lot of shrapnel and these bigger, heavier rockets that are sent to the Tel Aviv area do have a lot of shrapnel. So all day Friday, uh, Israelis in the center were running to bomb shelters. So again, not a normal Hanukkah at all. And intensified fighting in the north uh, Rick, during the week, we had two rockets from Syria fired at the Golan. The Israelis struck back at Damascus and some other targets in Syria. We had an Israeli civilian killed when his car was hit by an anti-tank uh, rocket, and we had tanks going into Lebanon for the first time, Israeli tanks, and we had the defense minister up there with the chief of staff on uh, earlier in the week saying that the uh, security zone would be expanded, that Hamas will be removed from southern Lebanon up to the Litani River. Those are the dimensions of the old uh, pre-war uh, buffer zone that was set up in 1978. So um, we, we look to have more action there, and the Israelis uh, finally are very concerned with the growing evidence that Iran is becoming more directly involved in the war. Of course, we had more attacks from the Houthis aimed at Israel and at U.S. forces and commercial shipping in the Red Sea. And then we had uh, seven uh, mortar shells land in the Baghdad U.S. consulate, uh, the U.S. embassy compound on Friday and uh, all during the week. In fact, the 24-hour period before that was the heaviest number of attacks on U.S. forces of any one day uh, since the war began. And so uh, everything is heating up all around the region, and the Israelis are, you know, still trying to celebrate Hanukkah as best they can, but it's uh, certainly a difficult one this year. Well, David, as Israel continues to prosecute the war and look to uh, not extract revenge, but actually defend themselves against future October 7th happening, it seems like across the world, and even uh, there was some stuff going on at the UN this week, but across the world, there is somewhat a denial 
that October 7th was as bad as people said and maybe that these rapes didn't happen. And so could you talk a little bit about how that is happening and maybe how related to anti-Semitism and anti-Jewishness that we've talked about before on this program that is becoming more and more pervasive around the world? Well, Rick, it's to me, it's just perverse because Hamas is deliberately trying today, yesterday, tomorrow to kill civilians. They're sending these rockets at apartment buildings, at schools, at homes. And if we didn't have the Iron Dome, I've mentioned this before, just think about it. There's been nearly 15,000 rockets fired. We'd have hundreds, if not thousands, of Israeli casualties, mostly civilians, if we didn't, God bless it, but if we didn't have the Iron Dome and the aerial defense systems. Hamas, uh, on Thursday, Rick, they fired rockets at Beersheba, again, a city in Israel, uh, from right next to tents where the refugees from the north had been moved to. Uh, and Israel has film from the air of this happening, and they showed it to journalists, etc. So this is a group deliberately trying to kill civilians, deliberately trying to slaughter, and obviously October 7th speaks for itself. And, of course, Rick, we had this meeting earlier in the week in New York talk about anti-Semitism that was featuring what happened to the women during that mass slaughter. And I mean, the details, uh, the chief pathologist spoke, and uh, I can't repeat most of what uh, was said. I read it only. I couldn't watch it, and it was too graphic almost to read. So this, you know, this was barbaric, treacherous. The Jews are, are trying to defend themselves. They were at peace. And, you know, this, this is interesting because it was the last day of the Feast of Sukkot, actually Simchat Torah, uh, when this attack took place. And here we are at the next major feast, Hanukkah, and uh, the war is intensifying and more people are dying. Uh, and Israel is only trying to defend itself and to keep this group. And one of their leaders said in Beirut a few weeks ago, we will do such attacks over and over and over again. How can Israel possibly? sit and allow that to happen and obviously they're planning to do something with Hezbollah in the north too because these threats are unbearable I've lived through them I had to move out of my home several times in the north during earlier rocket barrages I know what it's like Rick and uh, uh, Israel has to defend itself and the world well they're going to have to answer to God uh, whether they stand with Israel in its fight or not in its unprovoked war or not Well, David, we have just a minute or so left, but you talk about Hamas, you talk about Hezbollah, and we also have talked about the Houthis joining in as well and and looking to attack southern Israel. These are all Iranian proxies. You alluded to the fact earlier that we are all waiting to see if Iran is going to make this a region-wide conflict or if it's going to stay local uh, to to Gaza there. What do you think is going to happen? Is Iran going to jump into this even more so than they already have? Well, Rick, it isn't just Gaza. I mean, the the fighting in the north has been intense, and there's been uh, quite a few casualties, especially on the uh, Hezbollah side of the of the border. But they're the ones attacking, and uh, and of course, all this action in Syria and uh, Iraq against U.S. forces attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. So, uh, Iran has already gone halfway there to making this a regional war. And it's escalating is the the point I'm making. Increased attacks from the Houthis, increased attacks up there in Syria and, and, and Hezbollah getting more and more bold in its attacks. So it's widening as we speak, but uh, it's 
gonna, it's up to uh, Israel and it's up to the U.S. whether Iran has to directly answer for this. But I think the time is long overdue for that to happen. David Dolan, as always, we appreciate your perspective on the situation there, your reporting. We've talked to you almost every other day or so as you give us reports on what's taking place in Israel. We appreciate the work that you do, keeping our listeners informed. You're staying up with things and letting us know what is happening. We appreciate that, and we'll be talking to you again soon. Thank you, Rick. God bless. David, as always, you did a great job. Rick, I think it's so very important, the information that we get from our good friend David Dolan. It sure is, Jimmy, and he's been updating us on the daily program throughout the week. Now, normally we give you a current event and then relate it to Bible prophecy, but while this war has been going on, there have been so many people looking for accurate news that Dave has been giving us news updates throughout the week, which is helping us to understand what is taking place in Israel right now. Rick, you're so absolutely right. And every day we need to understand, we need to look at God's Word to see where we are, in the times in which we're living. And that's what Daniel did, understanding the times in which he was living. All the events that we look at are all about future events to be fulfilled. Well, when we come back, Paul Scharf will be talking about those 400 silent years, which led to the story of Hanukkah, which begins tonight. And then Dr. Richard Schmidt will be on the program, giving us an update on the pre-trib conference and talking to us about the attack on the body of believers in the United States of America. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. The U.S. State Department confirms war crimes and ethnic cleansing in Sudan, but the designation carries no consequence. Now in its eighth month, Sudan's civil war has displaced over six million people. Aid groups on the ground are Islamic, and they're denying help to Muslim background believers. Gospel workers are distributing food and encouraging people who've lost everything. Pray for a shift in this conflict and that people will come to know Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And Keys for Kids Ministries is reaching public school kids across the United States by partnering with the music group, the Heath Brothers. Keys for Kids' Greg Yoder says as the Heath Brothers do Christmas performances in public schools, they're handing out Keys for Kids devotionals. Since October, they've distributed around 3,000 devotionals sharing God's Word. You can help offset the cost by coming alongside Keys for Kids. We'll connect you at missionnews.org. Thanks for listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. This is the month of December. We've established that. We established it last week, and I'm sure everybody knows if you're like me. Uh, Rick, we're, we are still kind of trying to get everything together in order to enjoy the season. And sometimes the busyness of the holidays gets the best of us, and we really forget about the birth of Jesus Christ, and we forget about the reason for the season and understanding that. Well, it is the season of Christmas, and last week we also started a series with my good friend Paul Scharf. Paul Scharf is a church ministries missionary with Friends of Israel, uh, and he works in the Midwest. And uh, we started a series on Hanukkah. Paul, welcome back to the program this week. Thank you, Jimmy. It's great to be back with you. Yes, sir. And we got a lot of great response uh, from people that appreciate uh, always when we look at the Jewish holy days, holidays, the Jewish feast. 
uh, with either you or Steve Herzig, with Friends of Israel, you guys, uh, you enlighten us as to why the feasts are so important for us to understand as Christians, not necessarily to take part in them as bringing them back in, but really to understand them, correct? Right. It's so important for us to understand this background to our biblical faith, which Mm. comes, of course, to us really from the Jewish people. And it's also so important that we can understand and relate to our Jewish friends, especially at this uh, most festive season of the year for them as it is for us as Christians. So last week we talked about why, as we start to talk about Hanukkah, why it's important. Right. Well, Jimmy, it's so important because during those 400 silent years, as we often refer to them, we know that God was working all things after the counsel of his will, as he works throughout history to bring all things to fulfillment for of his glory. Uh, but he was working specifically during that time, we might say setting the stage for the coming of Christ, his first coming. Mm. I think that's why Hanukkah is also so vitally important for us today as we live at the time we believe we're seeing the stage being set for Christ's second coming and for the fulfillment of those prophetic events. But uh, back in this time, God was directing all things to bring the world to that precise moment when in the fullness of the time, he would send forth his son at the exact precise time that he had determined. And when the world conditions were in the place that God wanted them for that marvelous event to, uh, to occur and for the life of Christ and his ministry to take place on the earth. Yes, you know, what I love about it, it was exactly right on time. When you look at the years, uh, you know, mentioned in the book of Daniel, we know when Christ would appear in the city of Jerusalem. And really, you know, the Jewish people should have, and that's what Christ said, if you'd only read the prophets, you would know that I was supposed to be here at this very moment. So, you know, that's a, I love the the fact that he's always on time, never early, never late. And so that's a, I think that is so very important. Well, we are talking about uh, Hanukkah. It's the Jewish festival, the Feast of Dedication, also known as the Festival of Lights. It is an eight-day festival beginning on the 25th day of the Jewish month of Kislev. And I think that's right. important. So let's let's talk about Hanukkah again and just bring us up to speed. And then I have a few other questions I'd like to ask you as pertaining to Hanukkah. Well, Jimmy, Hanukkah, of course, uh, celebrates these events that happened in the 160s B.C. in between uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And thus, it cannot be a biblically mandated festival. It's not in the mm. uh, Mosaic Law. It's not in Leviticus 23. Uh, but it, it commemorates what happened when the Jewish people rose up in the most astounding way and overcame uh, the tyranny of a man named Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes, who came out of the Greek Empire, one of the four offshoots of Alexander the Great, and he took over the kingship of the Seleucid Empire, the Syrians. Mm-hmm. He's the king of the north, biblically, as opposed to the king of the south in Egypt, who he had tried to attack three times. And he had really set his sights on world domination, being the next Alexander. 
And the key, he believed, to implementing that kind of reign was to subjugate everyone in the empire, including the Jewish people whom he had overtaken, and he wanted to remove all of their culture, uh, all of their religion, everything, all of their traditions, everything that they knew and loved, and make them fully Greek. The the technical term is Hellenistic. Mm. And by the way, Jimmy, we see traces of uh, the results of this all through the Gospels, all the way into the book of Acts in the early church. Remember in Acts chapter 6, you had a group of widows that were concerned of the treatment they were receiving because they were Hellenistic uh, Jews and not uh, the traditional uh, Jewish people that uh, like the rest. And so we have this this uh, remnant of this time all the way down there into the New Testament church. Sure do. And really that uh, Hellenistic be- really begins with the Greek time period. And when you think about it, and I, I hope I'm not stealing your thunder a little bit, Paul, but when you think about it, the times of the Gentiles, this is that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel had a dream pertaining to the times of the Gentiles, beginning with the Babylonian Empire over being overtaken by the Medes and the Persians. And then the Greeks, Alexander the Great, and that's who you're referring to when you say Alexander. Alexander right. the Great, with the speed that he came from Greece across the European continent, all the way to ended up dying in Babylon at the age of 32. But really, then his Greek empire, his Grecian empire, was split into fours uh, in order for the four generals, Alexander the Great's four generals, to kind of take and have that area, which, I mean, it's laid out in Bible prophecy. So, I mean, here we're talking about this is the time period that the Seleucids were in control. They uh, overtook the Holy Land, really going into the temple. Well, we could talk about that. How do we see this in the Old Testament, Paul? Well, Jimmy, you've hit the nail on the head. It's all based in the book of Daniel. We have Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the four kingdoms that Mm -hmm. will rule the world from the time that Nebuchadnezzar began to overtake Jerusalem, uh, and his rule, uh, followed by uh, his successors through the end of the Babylonian kingdom, would be followed by Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, Mm. and then finally a revived Roman Empire at the end of time, in the future time of fulfillment of prophecy, we believe, before the second coming of Christ. This is described in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2, it's in the form of this magnificent rule of man that glimmers in the sun, this amazing statue, gold, silver, Mm. bronze, and iron. Uh, But then when Daniel receives another vision about this in chapter 7, he sees the four kingdoms, like uh, Peter calls uh, some people, natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. Oh, wow. He sees them as these horrendous, just uh, strange creatures, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and finally an indescribably horrible beast. And then Daniel sees them again in chapter 8 as a ram and a he-goat, this time only though Medo-Persia and Greece. And that's where we zero in on Greece and the Greek Empire that you've mentioned under Alexander the Great and then his successors as they're broken up. And over many decades, we get down to this time around 175 when Antiochus comes to power 
as the king of the north, the king of the Seleucids, the king of Syria, and uh, he's the man we were talking about who uh, had this vision of ruling the world like Alexander, and in the process of uh, ruling over the Jewish people, he desecrates the temple Mm. and does just unimaginably horrendous things to the people and to show his power over them and just to demoralize them within the temple in Jerusalem. And he brings an end to temple sacrifice. And in fact, he sacrifices a pig on the altar in honor of the uh, Greek god Zeus. And he's actually insane enough to believe that perhaps he's the manifestation. Antiochus Epiphanes uh, is his name. He's the manifestation, he believes, Theos Epiphanes of God and the Mm. god Zeus. Mm. And so uh, he, he carries out all these abominable works in Jerusalem and on the Jewish people. And it's all laid out, Jimmy, in biblical prophecy. You ask if, if it relates to Bible prophecy. It's actually, we believe Antiochus is a type of the future Antichrist. They're both, mm. They both have this unique, uh, they share this unique connection in that they're both going to commit an abomination of desolation in the temple in Jerusalem uh, and proclaim themselves to be God in the temple in Jerusalem. And sometimes the descriptions about them are so intertwined and matched so closely that even uh, Bible students in our pre-trib movement will interpret Mm -hmm. a a particular passage. Some will interpret it as being talking about Antiochus, and others will interpret it as talking about the future Antichrist. Mm. Uh, That's how closely these two men are interconnected on the pages of biblical prophecy. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining with us today and giving us a better understanding of Hanukkah. We look forward to having you back uh, in the future during a holiday or a holy day, one of the feasts of the Bible. And and, uh, give us again your website, Paul. Well, thank you, Jimmy. Uh, People can find all my resources for our ministry within the Friends of Israel on sermonaudio.com at sermonaudio.com slash p Sharf. That's P-S-C-H-A-R-F. Excellent. Thank you, Paul, for joining with us this week. We look forward to joining with you again. God bless you. Thank you so much, Jimmy. Well, this is the month of December, and uh, always in December, uh, traditionally with my father, it was always the pre-trib conference that takes place in Dallas. This year I did not go, but I wanted to talk to one of my good friends that did go. In fact, I call him America's Pastor. And uh, America's Pastor, you know him as Dr. Richard Schmidt. Dr. Schmidt, welcome to the program today. Well, thanks so much for having me. Yes, sir. And you were at pre-trib. You've been a faithful uh, attendee for all these years. What happened this year at the pre-trib? Tell us first what the pre-trib conference is and what took place. Well, the pre-trib conference started about 33 years ago with just a handful of prophecy teachers, of which one, of course, was your dad involved with this. And uh, they get together once a year. They discuss uh, any developing trends in dispensational theology, uh, basically regarding the pre-trib rapture and so forth, and trying to see if uh, any developments have occurred, anything that's been challenging. They get together and discuss those issues. 
and it's really, uh, you know, peers discussing together. Uh, you have a chance to talk to other prophecy teachers and folks and just find out uh, the temperature of America, uh, really, in, their, in the quest for learning Bible prophecy. And what did you come away from the conference with this year? Well, I think one thing I can say is the quest to study dispensational theology like you and I teach in the pre-tribulation rapture uh, around the country is definitely waning, but mm. this is a group, and in fact, it was one of the biggest groups they've had in 33 years of those that do believe in it. Well, just a couple of highlights, uh, of course, uh, an individual that you're familiar with and I, Dr. Andy Woods, uh, mm -hmm. basically went through and critiqued the pre Wrath rapture position, which has gained some very loud noise recently, and uh, just went through how it, it uh, quite frankly, doesn't fit in with a biblical model. Uh, Dr. Randall Price, uh, another one who is just an absolute scholar, talked about the fourth temple uh, in Jerusalem. Now, mm -hmm. there's been two temples. The third tribulation temple is yet to be built. And then he went through Ezekiel 40 to 48, talking uh -huh. about the millennial temple in which uh, Jesus himself will rule and reign from. That was wonderful. Uh, um, other individuals, just as a couple of highlights, uh, Dr. J.B. Hickson, who's uh, just an absolute uh, wonderful evangelist, but he was talking about uh, global technocracy and how those things are affecting, uh, basically, uh, the future and prophecy itself and what's taking place and how it's being used, unfortunately, yes, some for good, but a whole lot for bad. Uh, a newcomer uh, last couple of years, an individual named Lee Brainerd, uh, has done extensive uh, research on the pre-Darby rapture, uh, uh, basically those from the first centuries and the early church fathers that held to a pre-trib view, and he's just uncovered a massive amount of things that the opponents of pre-tribulation rapture said don't exist. Well, it does exist. A uh, quick one on Oliver Melnick, uh, a Messianic Jew, talked about anti-Semitism. Bill Koenig, a uh, former White House correspondent, gave a couple of hours of, of updated information. So, I mean, there's so much we could talk hours about what they did, but it, it was just a wonderful conference, and certainly I encourage people to go to it. So the pre-trib conference obviously talks about pre-tribulational rapture. We believe that the rapture is the next event to happen on God's timetable. After that, the tribulation period, that seven-year period, takes place. So I was uh, looking at the news, and usually I peruse through all the news sites, and uh, one caught my eye as I read the story. And one of the reasons that it caught my eye is because the gentleman that they were talking about is a devout Christian, and he believes in the rapture of the church being the next thing to happen on God's calendar. So I, obviously it piqued my interest, Dr. Schmidt, but as I look closely at it, this was an attack on this individual. Can you tell us what we know so far? Well, I'll tell you, this is, I'm, I'm so happy that you brought this issue up. Uh, basically the title of an article that uh, we discussed was James Carville, Christian nationalists like Speaker Mike Johnson are a bigger threat than mm. Al-Qaeda. Uh, basically, uh, James Carville was talking on a show with Bill Mars, basically stated he's an outspoken atheist and he absolutely has no use for anyone with a Christian worldview. 
So uh, basically, uh, what did uh, James Carville said? Well, he's sounding the alarm on new Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson, saying that uh, basically they're Christian nationalists, which are a bigger threat to the country than Al Qaeda. Well, that that is absolutely bizarre. It it uh, makes absolutely no sense. As uh, the Christian community, like you and I, uh, we are. Definitely supporters of yes. the Constitution. We support America. We're patriotic. So it's like, what in the world do they mean by this? And uh, Carville said, Mike Johnson and what he believes is one of the greatest threats we have to the United States. And he states, I promise you, I know these people. Well, he doesn't know us, obviously, because it's an absolute ludicrous statement. Uh, if he says we're a danger to America, I guess that means uh, being against sexual promiscuity, gender changes, uh, spending money that we don't have, fighting fraud and corruption, supporting the rule of law, all of these type of things uh, which we support, apparently they must be against. So mm. it's quite frankly, it's uh, an oxymoron here. Yes. Uh, he says uh, we're talking about Christian nationalists. Well, Yes, we believe in America. We support America as uh, fundamental Christians. So that's a real issue. But I kind of want to go into a different uh, a nexus to this because making allegations like that, stating that Christians are associated with terrorists, really we should define what that means from a governmental standpoint. It's pretty harsh words. Uh, just to give a, a quick update from the government, here's what they say. Tracking domestic terrorism falls primarily to the FBI, which defines it as perpetrated by individuals and or groups inspired by an association with primarily based on one of these topics, political, religious, mm. social, racial, or in, of an environmental nature. Mm. So basically what they're they're trying to do is is tout Christianity, which is nothing new as domestic terrorism. I mean, this has come out before. But uh, this is a massive problem. It, just think, Jim, if uh, this becomes people that are in Congress or that we vote into the Senate or even a president that holds to this type of rhetoric, that basically defines Christianity as a threat to America, and that has penalties associated with, including prison time and so forth. So this is a real horrible thing that just came out and a very, very bad use of TV, if you will, to try and uh, push Christianity into a bad hole. So now we're, we're talking about uh, James Carvel, a Democratic strategist who um, who we have seen throughout the years on CNN, even Fox News, and he made this statement towards the Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, who is a Republican from the same state of Louisiana as those two men are. So he obviously, James Carvel, knows a little bit about Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson, a stand-up politician, if you will, a outstanding person in the community, and he happens to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And because he believes that the rapture of the church is going to take place and take all Christians off the earth, Bill Maher and James Carvel have come out vehemently against him. 
So what's to stop these people from coming against you and I? Now, you've been in law enforcement. You're a pastor. You're a prophecy teacher. You have a, both a, uh, a pastor of a church and a prophecy ministry. What's to keep these people from coming after you and I? Absolutely nothing. Uh, the issue being, if you get a liberal district attorney who decides that uh, uh, Christianity is going to be defined as either a terrorist organization or a domestic terror uh, threat, a liberal district attorney, a liberal judicial system certainly could attempt to make a, a case against the, the Christian population. In addition to that, uh, uh, these individuals also stated they compared uh, Mike Johnson to the killer uh, the killing mm -hmm. that took place in Maine and said basically that Mike Johnson was mentally ill. Uh, I mean, that raises a whole nother problem with associating those who believe in the Bible as mentally ill people that, quite frankly, should be medicated or locked up. Yes. So these are huge, huge implications against the Christian community. So when you look at this, and when they label Christian nationalists, it's not just believers in the church, but when you looked at, at the really the backbone, uh, the blue-collar worker, the civil servant, police, fire, you know, first responders, military, there are a lot of good law-abiding citizens that are believers in that group. And so if we're coming, you know, if these people are coming after us, they're coming after really the backbone of America, aren't they? Well, boy, that's they couldn't have been said any better. Our churches are made up of every person from every possible social group, every economic group. We have the poor of the poor. We have the, some of the uh, wealthy folks as well. So you've got every class in there. So to put this out there and to uh, basically try and destroy something that has really this country was founded on, which, of course, they deny. It's, it's just an abominable act, and it, it, it just goes to show these individuals hate God. They hate a biblical worldview, and uh, it's not surprising because the Bible tells us that in the last days this thing would become uh, the obnoxious hate of God's people. It's just going to keep growing the closer we get to when Christ comes, and I believe we're there. Yes. What, as believers, you're a pastor and you're training your church, uh, those that sit underneath you as you teach, and you have a great ministry, but what scripture do we have as believers that help us in these days, and, and what's ahead for the church? Well, Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 tells us this, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Mike Johnson is very much aware of that today. The next verse, verse 13, says, But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So we look at uh, individuals that, uh, that unfortunately have a media platform and are supported by uh, billionaire corporations. They get their message out. They're going to keep the rhetoric going. And uh, quite frankly, uh, based on 2 Timothy 3.1, which says this, but know this, in the last days, the last days of the church age, perilous times will come. So, it's, again, uh, I don't think it's any surprise mm -hmm. to me or you. You've talked about this so much on your various programs. Uh, we're, we don't like it, but it's certainly part of being a Christian. Those who live godly are going to suffer persecution, 
And I guess well, the bottom line to this all is I believe Mike Johnson is trying to live godly, and it's going to be a tough goal uh, with those who are opposed to the Christian message. And so what charge do you give to us as believers, Dr. Schmidt? How do, how do we move forward? Well, let's go to Second Timothy in chapter 4. The Apostle Paul said, listen, during these perilous, dangerous times, uh, people are going to turn their ears away from sound doctrine. They're going to turn their ears away from the truth. So here's what he, uh, uh, God basically says. Here's what we need to do as God's people. Verse 2, 2 Timothy 4. Listen, Christian, preach the word, meaning the scriptures. Be ready in season and out of season. Well, we're out of season right now, meaning what? Meaning that uh, the opposition is there. The persecution is there. The people who are hating God's people Mm -hmm. are there. So he says, listen, Christian, do this. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all along suffering and teaching. And then in verse 5, basically, Paul says, be watchful in all things and endure afflictions. They're going to come. So God's people should be getting the gospel out, uh, the blessed news that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then we've just got to hold strong and not allow the, the negative, loud voices to stop us from doing what is right. Mm. Dr. Richard Schmidt, former uh, sheriff of Milwaukee County in uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, pastor, prophecy teacher. Give us the name of your prophecy ministry. Well, it's called Prophecy Focus, kind of a, I like to call it the sister of your ministry, Prophecy <laughs> oh. Today, so we're prophecyfocus.org. And a lot of great books that you have out, uh, one on artificial intelligence and globalism, and uh, you can go to his website or even go to amazon.com, be able to pick those up. Dr. Schmidt, thank you for keeping us aware, helping us, and, um, you know, uh, they're coming after us, and we need to be prepared. And we were never promised that we were going to set up a kingdom on this earth. That won't happen until Jesus Christ returns to the earth, and then things will get better. But for right now, things are going to continue to get worse. Thank you for joining with us today, and we look forward to our next conversation with you, Dr. Schmidt. Well, thank you so much. Dr. Richard Schmidt, a great friend of the Ministry of Prophecy Today. Coming up on the Legacy Series, we're going to continue our look at the birth of Jesus Christ. This time we're looking at the day. December 25th, is that the day? We'll come back right after a break, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, I've made it very plain that we are in the month of December, and you know what that means. That's true, Jimmy. This is the month before Christmas. As we look, as we prepare for the end of the year, we prepare for that special time with our families at Christmas. But also, Jimmy, this is an important time for us here at Prophecy Today as we look at end-of-the-year giving. It is very important to us. If you are interested in supporting the work that we do here and bringing you current events in the light of God's prophetic word, we would be so appreciative if you would consider donating to the ministry to help us continue to do what we do. Also, Jimmy, you can go to our website at prophecytoday.com. We have a bookstore. There's all kinds of study materials. All those purchases there help you to understand Bible prophecy and help us to continue doing what we do. Prophecytoday.com, and we thank you in advance. At the very least, please, well, I would say probably at the most, pray for us. 
as we continue this ministry that was started by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, our father. Speaking of that, on the Legacy Series today, we're going to continue with interesting details and facts as they relate to the Christmas story. What a season of the year for the family. As you said, Rick, it's always great to be together, to love each other, and to celebrate the birth of our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to be looking at what about the day that we do celebrate his birth, December 25th. Is that truly the day? That Christ was born on. We're going to look in just a moment at the Word of God and some events in history that give us the evidence that this is pretty close to that time. We look first at Luke chapter 1. So take your Bibles, go over to Luke chapter 1, and we will begin our study of some of these interesting details and facts as they relate to the Christmas story with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. Today we're going to continue our study of interesting facts and details related to the Christmas story, the first coming of Jesus Christ, which took place almost 2,000 years ago. I'm going to answer the question that many, many people ask all the time. Was it really December the 25th that Jesus Christ was born on? You know, I've heard sermon after sermon, and you probably have as well, heard sermons and preachers telling us that no way was Jesus Christ born on December the 25th. That would be in the middle of the winter. And in those fields in Bethlehem, uh, it would be a terrible time out there in the cold winter night with rain and sleet and snow. Listen, I lived in Jerusalem for the last 20 years, and I know exactly how it is in December there in those shepherd's fields. And I've seen six inches of snow on those shepherd's fields. It was a beautiful Christmas scene because so often we relate Christmas to snow. Those same sermons have talked about the shepherds not being able to be in the shepherd's fields at that point in time. I want to tell you, they had to be in those fields. But again, we have to go back to the question, how can we know if it was December the 25th, the true day of the birth of Jesus Christ? We're going to look today at the text, what God's Word has to say about it, the tyrant connected with this event of Christmas, and the theologians, and how did they come to the conclusion of accepting the 25th of December as the birth date for Jesus Christ. Let's go first to the text, and we'll go to the book of Luke, chapter 1, where we have one of the chapters that's dealing with the first coming of Jesus Christ, his birth. Let's go to verse 5, because in this verse, we're going to find out, actually, information helping us to determine the actual month that Jesus Christ would have been born. Remember, we're talking about Zacharias, who is a priest. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, and he was of the course of Abia. Now, let me stop right there. The course of Abia, what's that talking about? Well, remember King David was not allowed to build the temple because of sin in his life. His son Solomon would actually build the temple. In First Chronicles chapter 24, King David sets in place 24 courses for the 28,000 priests to work at the temple during the year. They would only work about a two-week period of time. Zacharias was of the course of Abia. 
According to additional Jewish literature, the Talmud, we know the time of the course of Abia. That would be the last week of July and the first week of August. He was serving in that period of time, and after his two weeks of responsibility as a priest at the temple, verse 23 tells us that when it came to pass, as soon as the days of his ministration were accomplished. What's that talking about? Well, Zacharias, like every priest, had responsibilities after their two weeks of service in the temple as a priest, and they had to go through the ritual baths, they had to go through many activities that would keep them from returning home until all of these activities were finished. Well, it says in verse 23, when they were accomplished, he departed to his own house, which was located in Encarim, about seven miles from the Temple Mount. Notice verse 24, and after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. As the angel Gabriel had told Zacharias the priest, his wife Elizabeth, who had had a barren womb until this time and up in age, was going to give birth to a child. He returns to his home after his ministration, which follows his two weeks of service. We're talking about the first week of September when Zacharias would actually get home and his wife conceived. And then the text tells us that she hid herself for a five-month period of time. Look at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth. And you've read this story before. You can read through it now or later after the broadcast is over. But you will see that the angel Gabriel came to Mary the Virgin and said she would conceive of the Holy Spirit and she would give birth to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now let's think just for a moment. Zacharias goes home. He gets there the 1st of September. His wife conceives. So let's check it out. She was six months before Mary would hear that she was going to conceive by the Holy Spirit to bring forth the man-child, Jesus Christ. October, November, December, January, February, March. That's the sixth month. That's when Mary conceives. Let's start in March. April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December. And so we have the conclusion that indeed Jesus Christ would be born in the month of December. Now that does not zero in on the exact day, but we've now locked in according to the text, the month of December would be the time of the birth of Jesus Christ. I want to look now at the tyrant. And let me remind you of the story of the tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes. In order to be able to do that, we've got to go back over to the book of Daniel, chapter 11. The prophet Daniel, in chapter 11, a very prophetic passage of Scripture, gives us five personalities, five political leaders that he prophesies and foretells will come on the scene many years before that ever happens. Let's go to verse 21 now, and we read about the madman, Antiochus Epiphanes. It talks about 360 years before the fact, a Grecian ruler who would come into Jerusalem and commit the abomination of desolation. Look at verse 31. And arms shall stand on his part. In other words, he was going to be a military leader. They shall pollute the sanctuary of strength and take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate. There is going to be an abomination of desolation in the future. We'll get to that in just a moment. But this was the prototype when Antiochus Epiphanes on Keslov 25, 168 B.C., and Keslov is a Jewish month that corresponds with our month of December. 
So on December the 25th, 168 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes walks into the temple, takes a pig, slaughters the pig on the altar, and throws his innards all over the holy temple. That was the abomination of desolation that Daniel wrote would happen, and it took place, Keslov 25, 168 B.C. On Keslov 25, 165 B.C., that's December the 25th, three years to the day after Antiochus Epiphanes desecrated the temple, the Maccabees came in and ran Antiochus Epiphanes out of the temple. They cleaned it up. They reconsecrated the temple. During the cleanup of the temple, they had found a flask of virgin olive oil. That's how you fuel the seven-branched candle opera, the menorah. And so they lighted the menorah with that flask of virgin olive oil, and that was enough to keep the menorah lighted for one day. However, it stayed lighted for eight days. Thus, the Jewish holy day of Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication, or the Feast of Lights. Remember, Jesus Christ celebrated the Feast of Hanukkah in John chapter 10 and verse 22. That's what the menorah in the holy place in the temple represents, the light of the world, that light, Jesus Christ. Well, Hanukkah is celebrated today. The Jewish people gather with their family, and for eight days straight, they light an additional candle and talk about the activities of the Maccabees when they ran Antiochus Epiphanes out of the temple, out of Jerusalem, reconsecrated the temple, and brought it to a place where it could then serve as the worship center for the Jewish people to worship God. Now, your next question may be, what does this have to do with December the 25th? Well, that's a great question. I'm going to answer it right now. We've looked at the text in Luke chapter 1, and that indicates that Jesus Christ was indeed born in December there in the shepherd's fields. The story about the tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes gives us a date, December the 25th. And I want you to know that the theologians selected December the 25th to celebrate the birthday of Jesus Christ. It was first selected by the Western Church early in the 4th century. Actually, there was a sermon that was preached on December the 25th, 386 A.D. in Antioch. It's a very interesting connection, by the way, to Antiochus Epiphanes and the future. Antiochus performed the abomination of desolation, which was a prototype of an end-of-times prophecy that will be fulfilled. In order for that to happen, there must be another madman, a world dictator, or maybe you know him better as the Antichrist, who shall come on the scene. Now, in addition to this world dictator, we'll need a temple standing on the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem. Again, the Bible tells us in Daniel 9, 27, there will be a temple to be desecrated with the abomination of desolation at the midway point of the seven-year tribulation. Second Thessalonians 2, 4, the apostle Paul tells us how the abomination will take place as the Antichrist walks into the Holy of Holies on the temple in Jerusalem at the midway point of the tribulation period and claims to be God, the abomination of desolation. The Bible does tell us about this event that looks to the future, a connection with the first coming of Jesus Christ and the way we get the day, December the 25th, to celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. Every single prophecy that will be fulfilled in that seven-year period of time is at the point of being fulfilled. 
But before that happens, before any of the prophecies of the future will be fulfilled, the next prophecy on God's calendar is the rapture of the church. When Jesus shouts, the archangel shouts, the trumpet of God sounds, and we leave this place to go to be with him in the heavenlies forevermore. That rapture could happen, by the way, at any moment. How does this connect to the Christmas story? It's a very significant connection. If Jesus Christ did not fulfill all of the prophecies for the Messiah at his first coming, as he did, then we would have no assurance of the second coming. But the truth be known, the Christmas story is evidence that Jesus Christ did fulfill every one of those prophecies pertaining to his first coming. That gives us the basis upon which we then can be assured that Jesus Christ will fulfill those prophecies pertaining to his second coming. And every one of those prophecies are about to be fulfilled as the ones for his first coming, which took place at Christmas almost 2,000 years ago. What a profound thought. The prophecies fulfilled related to the first coming of Jesus Christ give us a basis upon which then we can have assurance that Jesus Christ will fulfill every single prophecy found in the word of God related to his second coming. I have to say, if you have any idea of those prophecies that will be fulfilled during that seven-year tribulation period, you're aware of the fact we're at that point in history when they well could be fulfilled, and very, very soon now. I hope and pray that you have looked back to that first coming of Jesus Christ in order to be prepared for the second coming by having put your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Next week on the broadcast, we'll be looking at those shepherds that were in the shepherd's fields at the time of the birth of Christ and received the announcement of his birth from the angels above the shepherd's fields. You'll find out some very interesting details and facts about the Christmas story related to the shepherds if you can join us next week. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. The U.S. State Department confirms war crimes and ethnic cleansing in Sudan, but the designation carries no consequence. Now in its eighth month, Sudan's civil war has displaced over six million people. Aid groups on the ground are Islamic, and they're denying help to Muslim background believers. Gospel workers are distributing food and encouraging people who've lost everything. Pray for a shift in this conflict and that people will come to know Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And Keys for Kids Ministries is reaching public school kids across the United States by partnering with the music group, the Heath Brothers. Keys for Kids' Greg Yoder says as the Heath Brothers do Christmas performances in public schools, they're handing out Keys for Kids devotionals. Since October, they've distributed around 3,000 devotionals sharing God's Word. You can help offset the cost by coming alongside Keys for Kids. We'll connect you at missionnews.org. Thanks for listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. 
If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, a chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end times prophecy book that God has preserved in his scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. So over the last hour and a half, we've been talking about and examining current events. And one of those current events happens to be an attack on the body of Christ. And in these days in which we're living, we're going to experience more attacks on thousands of people, millions of people that are a part of the body of Christ. Well, I thought today it would be good in our portion of the program where we take a look at the book. I wanted to talk to a friend of mine who's been a friend for a lot of years. He's a battalion chief in the city of Dallas, Texas. He has a coach's outreach. He does so many things. In fact, when I called him to do the interview, he was out on a call on the highway. And this is my good friend, Chief John Sutton. John, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. John, what else do you do in your spare time? Well, I have cattle. I raise hay. We have a little pecan orchard <laughs> and a few other things. So you are, to, needless to say, you're a busy man. And uh, what you do, uh, you still have time to study God's Word because you are a student working on your master's in our program our uh, advanced eschatology program and uh, with Louisiana Baptist University. But uh, I wanted to get in touch with you and because I know that you've talked about this before when you teach Sunday schools, when you're coaching, uh, uh, when you're speaking to your coaches and your coaches outreach, this attack on Christians in America. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I actually have like looked at issues that were relevant current and those things that I thought would affect like the church and the effectiveness of the church and uh-huh. ministry for a long, long time. And one of the things that I've noticed is it seems like people on the opposition, they always do a really good job of framing the argument and they come up with terms to apply to us like intolerant or not accepting are closed-minded, etc. And I know the the topic that you're wanting to uh, like delve into is on Christian nationalism. And again, I've been looking at events that uh, affect Christianity for actually about three decades now, and it just seems like this is one more step in the process to attempt to marginalize us and uh, our beliefs, our Christian worldview and how they can attempt to hinder us in our effectiveness as far as how we minister to those in the culture around us. Yes, you know, and they're not, I mean, initially they attack politicians, but uh, this particular politician believes like we do, has a a pre-trib view of Bible prophecy, believes in the rapture. He's the Speaker of the House. So, but this attack is really really thrown out against the whole body of Christ. And, you know, when we start looking at that, that would be 
our uh, civil servants, the police, fire, first responders, uh, military, um, everyone gets lumped in to we are in the same category as terrorists. And uh, I mean, you do things really showing the love of Jesus Christ in what you do, don't you? Yes. Uh, whenever we we involve ourselves in the fire service, one of the things that I tell people is there is no ethical dilemma for us. Everything that we do is very compatible with our Christianity. And just sort of dovetailing along the things that you mentioned there, the uh, the mindset that the general public has toward us has really changed. I've been doing this now for over 37 years. And so routinely, firefighters are attacked. The respect for people in positions of authority has really, really diminished over the last few years. And so I think it's just an entire mindset that the culture as a whole has now. And uh, it's a move toward lawlessness. And that's what we see. Uh, we all, in my department, we were very much part of the Black Lives Matter riots. And there was a lot of violence and a lot of uh different activities in the city of Dallas downtown area that uh, firefighters were assaulted, bricks were thrown at our fire engines and fire trucks. And so we got to see firsthand how this mindset manifests itself. John, as students of the word, we understand that the Bible connects man's lawlessness and rebellion against God with his need for God's forgiveness. In Romans 4, 7, Paul says, and he's quoting Psalm 32, 1, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. God's righteousness is imputed to us at salvation and God forgives all of our lawlessness, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. Hebrews ten seventeen, quoting Jeremiah, Christ died on the cross to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's Titus two fourteen. Our lawless deeds resulted in Christ's death, but God's grace overcomes our lawless hearts. And that's what we have to remember in the times in which we're living. Well, I would just say this, and a lot of people hate the way our culture is is moving, the direction it's moving. But one thing that just impresses me a lot is we get to see people that stand boldly in the face of all of this pressure. I, I don't believe we're actually in persecution right. mode here yet, but people that stand boldly. And one of the things that I, I, I really appreciate about all this is you and I, we get to see who is genuine. Mm -hmm. And so I don't see it as altogether a, a negative process. It helps us to shine bright the darker that our culture gets. Mm. Good words. Let your light shine before all men. John, thank you for your service and what you do, and I appreciate you so much and all your men and all first responders all over America. John, thank you for being on the program today. Yes, sir. My privilege. I like what John said. He said that we're not under attack yet <laughs> what it really could be. That day could come here in America, but we are to be a light we are to shine like the sun, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13. 
Christ will have the ultimate victory and will eliminate lawlessness forever. We must remember that those people that are against us are not against us. They're against our Savior, Jesus Christ. Folks, with all the things that we've seen today, we need to be prepared and ready in living pure, productive lives. The rapture could happen. Let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.